You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. All right, today is October 22nd, 2019. I'm Peter Betke. I am the uh, university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University and the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in uh, Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. And today I'm here with uh, my guest, Professor Richard Ebeling. Uh, Richard is the BB&T Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Free Enterprise Leadership at the Citadel in South Carolina. Prior to that, Professor Ebeling was a, a professor at Northwood uh, University. He was president of the Foundation for Economic Education. He was a Ludwig von Mises professor at Hillsdale College and also a professor at the University of Dallas. Um, professor Ebeling was also a professor at Rutgers in the Austrian Economics Program, which was the precursor for the Center for Study of Market Processes at George Mason, which eventually became Mercatus. Um, so Richard has known and taught many of the key figures, including not only Israel Kirzner, Ludwig Lachman, and, and Murray Rothbard, but also the Austrian Austrians, such as Machlup and Hobbler, and also the younger generation, such as Tyler Cowen and Dan Klein, um, but also Peter Leeson, Ryan Opria, Robert Murphy, etc. Um, and I'm going to start by trying to get Richard to talk about uh, how he got involved in Austrian economics and the various different um, the time period and what it was like to be a young Austrian in the 1970s and then the various exciting initiatives that took place during that time uh, by various academic entrepreneurs, but then also the shock of Hayek winning the Nobel Prize and, and all that. So first, welcome uh, Thank to you. here, uh, Richard, and uh, let's begin. So uh, how did you get all involved in these ideas? Actually, I got interested in these ideas when I was in high school. Uh, you know, how, how do you explain why you get interested in something? But I was in junior high school and actually high school particularly, and I was interested in history and uh, political current events and that type of thing. And uh, I had a part-time job um, after my high school hours at the Hollywood Public Library. I grew up in Hollywood, California. Uh, John Ritter of Three's Company was my student body president. For those who remember that old sitcom, yeah. his father was Tex Ritter. Anyway, um, so I had this part-time job, and um, it was an old, grand, old-fashioned uh, Art Deco building, which has since burned down. Uh, but I, uh, my, my primary job was I was on the balcony taking care of the magazine collections. You know, new issues come in, you have to put them away. Issues are asked for, you have to return them. And uh, so I would do my work. I was there four hours a day, and I would do my work in two hours, and then hide in the balcony and just read. And then one day I had been at a used bookstore along Hollywood Boulevard, and uh, on my way home, I stopped at a restaurant that no longer exists at the corner of Hollywood and Vine called Hody's Restaurant. And I sat down on a stool at the counter between two guys. And I later found out this was their routine. They would leave a stool open between them because they were the spiders attracting flies. Uh -huh. And so I opened one of the books I had bought. And I still remember it. It was a uh, collection of essays on totalitarianism edited by a once well-known political scientist named Carl Friedrich. And one of the, these gentlemen asked me, well, what's that about? 
draws me into this conversation. And I say, blah, 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 blah. And he says, have you ever heard of Ayn Rand? And they say, well, this is a, a political a philosopher. She writes about these things. And one of them whips out a paperback copy of her nonfiction essays, Capitalism and the Unknown Ideal. And they say, we want you to read this and come back in three days. And this is all the true story, Pete. So I go home and read this. And, oh, this, this, is, this is wonderful. So I come back in three days. And we chat for about an hour. And then they hand me a paperback copy of her other collection, The Virtue of Selfishness. And I go home and read this because they said, come back in three days. And not, now this is wonderful. Man has inherent rights. You know, The collective doesn't have a claim on my fruits of my labor. And so I come back, and we talk about this one. And they said, well, we think it's time for you to read her novels. And one of them whips out a paperback copy of Atlas Shrugged. My heart sinks. I know they're going to say three days. <laughs> and they say, read this and come back in ten days. I wipe the sweat from my brow. Yeah. But I read the book, um, and I will confess, I read John Galt's speech three times. And then they said, when I came back to talk with them, you know, you can attend tape lectures about her philosophy. This was at the old Nathaniel Brandon Institute. And uh, so I started attending tape lectures with them. And uh, there would be a break in the middle of the evening, uh, you know, get coffee, visit the restroom. But there was also a, a bookshelf full of books that she recommended. And what was there? Well, Ludwig von Mises, uh, Bombavirk, uh, Henry Hazlitt, uh, Karl Menger, um, a variety of others, uh, Albert J. Nock and, uh, and uh, Herbert Spencer and so forth. And I started reading this. And I became fascinated. First, because it was like the economic bolstering of a philo the philosophy of individualism. But now I just got interested in what they were saying, economics, qua economics. And uh, I then found out that there was this magazine called The Freeman. And remember, this was the era of snail mail. This is like mm -hmm. in the 1960s. So uh, I started corresponding with Bettina Bien Graves, who is one of their senior staff members and knowledgeable about all things Mises. And she started sending me and feeding me all these articles. That's how I found out about Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. So that by the time I finished high school, uh, I knew, A, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to major in economics. Uh, and these were these the ideas that I cared about. So I, I start college. And my first semester, freshman year, I can sign up for an economics class. And I have this rude awakening because I'm assigned a textbook, Paul Samuelson's seventh edition. And I realize that this is an economics different than the stuff I've been reading on my own. <laughs> uh, and uh, to make a, a long story short, uh, because time is a scarce resource, I suppose, um, I, I ended up finishing my bachelor's degree at California State University in Sacramento, where all my professors were uh, old-fashioned textbook Keynesians uh, or Stalinist Marxists. And notice how I say that. I just don't mean Marxists. They, th these two professors believed that the world had become a sadder place since Comrade Stalin had died. And the only two countries to look f to for guidance and hope for a future was Mao's China and Albania. Uh, now, so I'm attending all these classes, and I've been reading on my own. And I got frustrated because the other students are just, you know, absorbing this. So this intensified me, where I would go to the library and just find old books and the journal articles. Um, and I was, and then I would, let's put the, I would try, attempt to discuss in the classroom. Not that I knew, you know, about like 18, 19 years old. I'm not going to influence to change the professor's view, but I wanted the other students to know that there were other views. 
But that ended up honing my skills about realizing the kind of arguments that I could be presented by mainstream economics. So that made me want to learn mainstream economics even more so that I could understand why they held these views and the logic behind them if, in fact, the other views, the, quote, Austrian views that I had been reading on my own, had validity and had a response to their criticisms. Uh, and so, that this, so as a result, the, this, this is the environment. Now, it, it was a very anti-Austrian environment because uh, when Mises died in 1973, um, I wrote a little obituary piece for the college newspaper, and one of my professors came up, and he wasn't joking. He said, Mises, Mises, didn't he die in the 19th century? And then when Hayek won the Nobel Prize, um, I put on a bulletin board of like a coffee room that econ students and the professor shared, a uh, big notice, you know, Hayek, Nobel Prize winner, announced today. And my professor, who, who, who's this Hayek guy? What has he ever done in economics? Deserve? Oh, yeah, he wrote that diatribe uh, called The Road to Serfdom. Uh, oh, wasn't he the economist scratching their head who 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 talked about full employment during the Great Depression. So that, that, was, that, was the, that was the environment I was in. The library there had an excellent collection in that they had the bound volumes of all the economics journals virtually back to the first issues of the late 19th century. So I started plowing through this. Yeah. And I suddenly realized that there wasn't just Austrian economics, uh, which I tried to find as many of those pieces as possible. But there was this vast body of economics knowledge before Keynes and before Paul Samuelson, that was fascinating, brilliant, insightful, and, and rich with understanding. And so I, I just was absorbing this. Now, in the, in the midst of this, uh, I had had the opportunity through some mutual friends to be introduced to um, Baldy Harper, Floyd Harper, the founder of the Institute for Humane Studies, IHS, which was then headquartered in Menlo Park, California. Baldy unfortunately passed away, and other people were then serving as the caretakers to maintain IHS, and they remembered me. So uh, in the uh, early part of 1974, I get this invita invitation in the mail. Remember, I'm an undergraduate to attend this Austrian economics conference in South Royalton, Vermont. Uh, and uh, they paid my way enough to go across country from California to Vermont by Greyhound bus. All I'd done is read these people, right? I'd never met any of them. So you have images in your mind about what people look like, their, you know, their personas. So from just reading, for example, Murray Rothbard, I had this, you know, man, economy, and state, America's Great Depression. I had this conception of him as tall, thin, and very serious. My astoundment when I show up, and there's this short, roly-poly guy who keeps laughing, cackling, and telling funny stories. Uh, but I had a chance to, that was my first introduction to Ludwig Lachmann, to Israel Kirzner. Henry Hazlitt attended it. Uh, there was a dinner. Milton Friedman came to, to one of the dinners because he had a home in Vermont, and he had been invited to like a, one of the main dinners. Um, and it was, it was, the, the lectures were delivered by Kirzner, Lachman, and Rothbard. It uh, became a volume called the, found, uh, the Foundations of Modern Austrian Economics, edited by Edwin Dolan. And uh, among the participants there were, in retrospect, now you realize they were in graduate school. I think one or two, like myself, were still undergraduates but very interested in these ideas, who now, in retrospect, realize became an entire generation of helping to revive the Austrian school. Mm -hmm. um, Karen Vaughan was there. Uh, Jack High was there. Uh, Mario Rizzo was there. Gerald O'Driscoll was there. 
Suda Shinoi was there. Uh, 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 Don, uh, who, who else was there? I'm, I'm blanking out. But all the potpourri of these, Roger Garrison, um, and you know, then they're just young people interested in these ideas. Well, you know, fast forward like almost a half a century later, and now looking back, they were the major forces for a reawakening of the mm -hmm. Austrian tradition. Um, and so there, the, 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 you met people you had never met before, and these became close-knit relationships. Um, and so after that conference, which was fascinating and would itself would be a whole series of amusing stories, so then the next year, um, and I'm still an undergraduate, um, I get this invitation to be a summer fellow uh, for IHS uh, in Menlo Park, and which I repeated in 1977. And again, the, you know, the, the usual suspects were all there, many of whom I mentioned from South Royalton. But both of those summers, also in residence, uh, was Friedrich Hayek. Now, of course, in 75, he had now won the Nobel Prize. Um, and uh, by lucky uh, chance, both summers, his office was only one or two doors down from mine. And uh, here I am in my mid-20s. And at that time, he was around you know, 76, 77 years old. So to me, this seems like an ancient guy. And I'm thinking to myself, 77 years old? He could die in his sleep. Well, he's gone. So I took the attitude, I, I have to go into his office and drain everything out of his mind about Austrian economics. So uh, b being in uh, a real pest, I mean an interested young person, <laughs> uh, uh, every time he was in the office, which is very frequently, um, I would try to go in for an hour or two and just pick his mind. And he was... If one could have a, an epitome of what you think a Nobel Prize winner should be, knowledgeable, worldly wise, patient, willing to share their, his knowledge with you, um, deferential uh, to listening to what you had to say, that was Hayek in a persona. Uh, but I should also mention is that uh, his doctor had insisted that he give up smoking. He had been an avid pipe smoker for, I guess, decades. But he had a nicotine need, so he started sniffing snuff. So he would sit there talking to you, with, you know, sniffing the snuff, and, and the little shreds would start dribbling down on his mustache, on his tie, and you couldn't concentrate on what he was saying because you're wondering, where's it going to fall next? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, It's one of the funny scenes in his interview with Alchin in the oral histories is that he uh, stops in the middle and he puts some snuff on his thing exactly. and, then, and then sniffs it. And when you're first watching it, especially this generation, when isn't used to it, you think, did Hayek just snort cocaine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> did he just do that on film? But no, it's a snuff thing, yeah. So, but uh, but those are, the, those, are, those are great experiences to get to know Hayek. I mean, uh, anyone who had that opportunity uh, of my generation certainly can say that they met in the flesh one of the great intellectual figures of the 20th century. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I should say one other thing about him is that, you know, after having been at the pinnacle of international attention in the 1930s, and in fact, uh, some, you know, those studies that say, you know, who, who's been the most uh, cited economist in this time and that time, uh, in the 1930s, uh, he was the third most cited economist in the English language journals in the world, right after... John Maynard Keynes and Dennis Robertson. And you look through that type of list in the post-World War II period, he's gone down an Orwellian memory hole. Mm -hmm. uh, he said at one time in some interview that when uh, 
Keynes passed away in 1946, he said to his wife, I guess that makes me the most famous economist in the world. And from that to intellectual oblivion. Um, but in spite of that, you know, you would talk to him in these conversations like I did, and he was amusingly self-deprecating. He would say, well, l let me share you one more story about one of my other famous defeats in a conversation with Arthur Pigou and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, people who knew him say that he went through several depressions in the, in the 1950s and 60s, but maybe the, the Nobel Prize really changed him, but he certainly didn't demonstrate that at all. He, he, he could look backwards and, and see amusement uh, in it all, but now from the perspective of a revival of an interest in him and his ideas. I wanted to focus today on the conversations having to do with Mises and his papers, mm -hmm. uh, of which you were part. So first, I would like it if you could um, give some background to Mises' fundamental contributions and his uh, relevance um, in his time. Okay. Well, just uh, the, the, the sort of basic uh, biography stuff. He was born in September uh, 1881 in the eastern reaches of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, region or uh, Galatia. Uh, he came from a very prominent uh, Orthodox Jewish family. In fact, it was his great-grandfather who was ennobled with the title Fon, Ludwig von Mises, uh, just a few months before he was born. In fact, um, uh, if you look through his uh, ennoblement papers, that is his great-grandfather's -grand, great ennoblement papers, in the Austrian Vienna archives, uh, his 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 great grandfather had 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 to prepare a uh, a family tree, and there's all the people for several generations, but no Ludwig, and why is there no baby Ludwig? Because Ludwig hasn't shown up in the world for about another three or four months, um, and in in fact uh, the family was prominent, uh, not in the only in the Jewish community in the narrow sense. But they were uh, supporters of, of liberal enlightenment policies uh, throughout the 19th century. Uh, there's a, a Polish sort of uh, intellectual biography of famous Poles of, in the geographical sense of Poland. And if you look up uh, the, the, the citation on his great-great-grandfather, uh, they were active in the liberal causes of the revolutions of 1848. Oh. Um, and so he was ennobled as relative of his, his great-great-grandfather, because of his service to the Orthodox Jewish community and the general community enlightenment activities, and therefore the, the emperor, Franz Josef, was, was recognizing this contribution with the ennoblement, and that's how he became von. Uh, his father was a railway engineer um, trained in Switzerland, uh, but like many, um, like many Jews of who, who, who joined the sort of Enlightenment reform culture. Uh, his father decided to move to Vienna and leave the, the traditional family home uh, to pursue his career in Vienna. So the family moved there in the early 1890s. Uh, Mises obviously was a small boy, but he ended up going to uh, the academic gymnasium. Uh, this was uh, an academic-oriented high school that was meant to consciously be a stepping stone for those students who were planning um, to go on to, to university. Uh, he had a very thorough education uh, in the classics, of course, but uh, uh, his, his first language, foreign language, was French, and his second language was, uh, was English. Um, and uh, in this setting, uh, he, uh, 
he would have he would have become well versed in the natural sciences in in the ancient Greeks. He he knew ancient Greek. He knew he knew Latin. Uh, he he knew a working knowledge of Italian, uh, and uh, he could understand several of the uh, Slavic languages. Uh, that became clear from the lost papers that we'll end up talking about. So to make a long story short, because I'm sort of sort of focusing perhaps too much on that family relationship, he ended up going to the University of Vienna. He earned a law degree uh, with a focus on economics, which is how the system works. So he was both a lawyer and an economist. But uh, academic positions were few and far between, so he ended up having to go to work with the Vienna Chamber of Commerce, a position that he took up in 1909, uh, and which he held until 1934, uh, except for the war years. He served, he was called up, he was, had been in the uh, reserves, a lieutenant in the reserves, Austrian army, was called up uh, to active duty uh, with an artillery unit, uh, saw action during most of that time on the Eastern Front fighting the imperial Russian armies uh, in the Carpathian Mountains and uh, in what now we would consider uh, part of Ukraine, uh, and was three times decorated for bravery under fire uh, in leading his men uh, to, to capture uh, uh, Russian military batteries and armament uh, wagons. Um, Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Uh, uh, two, so two things, one culture and one scientific. Yes. Um, so recently, about two or three years ago, I read uh, Stephen Zweig's uh, the, the World of Yesterday, yes. which is about this same period yes. um, in Vienna. It's, it, it was, it's related to when I was, I was doing research on a, on a book on Hayek, and I came across a new book about the uh, Vienna Circle, and it was called uh, The... Um, the quest for exact thinking in demented times. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a fascinating kind of idea. So then I started figuring out what actually, you know, how did these guys all see dementedness of the times? And the Zwig book did a really great capture of the glory of Vienna, yes. of Vienna, and then the decline that happens, you know, through the, in the thirties and all that stuff after that. But um, in your, in, in your own experience of, of trying to, recapture this intellectual culture or whatever, do you have any good recommended books for people about Vienna and the wonderment of Vienna and then the, the frustration with the tearing apart of that civilization? Well, actually, you know, th there's a whole series of books that have been published over the last 25 or 30 years, maybe even earlier than that, on, on Vienna at the turn of the century. Uh, to be fr quite frank, I'm, there's like so many of them, I'm blanking out okay. on the titles, but, but there are some fairly good ones. None that particularly focus on economics. It's sort of the culture, the society, the politics, uh, the decline and decadence of the society. To give one example of this, but in a different context, uh, the founder of the Austrian school, Karl Menger, uh, had been uh, the tutor to the heir apparent, Rudolf, uh, who ended up committing suicide. But during the years when they were associated together, uh, they they put together they published quote, an anonymous monograph on, on the Austrian aristocracy and its decadence, uh -huh. that they had lost their place in society pursuing uh, pleasures and, and wasteful activities, uh, and that therefore their day had passed and it was time for a middle-class bourgeoisie that would represent a new modern and enlightened ethic for the society. And uh, th that, I think, sort of captured... It's often said that... that uh, I, I believe, with some exaggeration, 
that, that the intellectuals who understood the, the world they were living in at that time were always depressed, pessimistic. Uh, they, they point to the number of suicides. Well, of course, if you really add up the suicides, it's a fraction. But, you know, if, if there are people who seem prominent or you've, even if, if you're alive and you've known them, it impacts you. Um, but uh, but I, leave that, I believe there was always a sense that, 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 that the Austro-Hungarian Empire w was sort of an anomaly. Mm -hmm. It represented an institution and a social order of the past that the world was now, had been moving into a different era. And there was often a comment uh, by foreign observers that the only thing that held the empire together politically, culturally, uh, socially, was the emperor, Franz Josef. Uh, he had taken power in 1848, and he only passed away in, in 1916, in the middle of the First World War. It's an Im immensely long reign, over half a century. So, so for many people, he was. Austria-Hungarian. They yeah. were the Austria of them culturally, a, a sense of a mm -hmm. figure. Um, and so they always felt that, that they were they, they were at end of times because how long could this guy rule with his symbolic glue holding the society together? And when he eventually passed, th there was nationalist uprisings and sentiments. Uh, there was political chaos. Um, the, the minority groups in the Austrian parliament would often go into filibusters. And so the emperor would have to give the prime minister extraordinary executive authorities to just rule by... Not dictatorial decree, but you know things have to be operating on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. You don't need Parliament's approval for everything every day. Um, there was a sense of the rise of of, of socialist sentiments. Uh, the Social Democratic Party was very active uh, in in Vienna, in particular, uh, beginning in the 1890s. And at the same time, uh, the city government was controlled by the Christian socials, who 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 were called by some. Uh, as the advocates of the socialism of fools, because they were highly anti-Semitic. Uh, so, so you had radical socialists, you had anti-Semitic socialists of a so, sort of a cultural conservative bent. Uh, you have have this rising nationalism nationwide, threatening to split the country, and uh, and you just feel that Austria is like out of out of sync with all these either for good or bad, modern trends. Yeah. Uh, and and th that was the environment in which these people lived. Yeah. Uh, Mises' comments uh, in some of the essays in passing before the First World War, th that what needs to be preserved and, and, and enhanced is, is the Austrian idea. Now, the Austrian idea, uh, which was common among some intellectuals at the time, is that if people could feel that they shared a common culture and a common uh, future, even though they had national and linguistic difference, uh, Austria-Hungary could be sort of what what Lord Acton uh, was was hoping for in his famous essay on nationality in the, in the 1860s, 1867, uh, in which he says, uh, while people have their own senses of national identity, ethnicity, linguistic commonality. The best state is a multicultural state. Uh, the reason being is that those those groups that have culturally moved further ahead can uplift the others that are further behind. And yet at the same time, that diversity makes those who are culturally more advanced realize that they need to be tolerant, that they aren't the only ones. And so that, in fact, enriches the society by a multiculturalism of a society. Mm. And the advocates of this Austrian idea uh, were, were great proponents of that. Th this is a theme developed for, uh, by an excellent historian who, 
who was considered in the middle decades of the 19th, uh, 20th century as one of the major authorities on nationalism, Hans Kuhn. He, in fact, was a, a German Jew who grew up in, in, in Prague in those early, in the 1890s and beginning of the century. Um, and he, he, in several of his works, he explains to and helps you understand this idea of this lost hope of an Austrian mm. idea. Um, so switching from the culture, I mean, that's fascinating. I don't usually quote Marx, but one of the things that I really like a phrase of Marx was um, when he describes these transitions sometimes, he says, all that's solid melts into air. Yes. And, I, and when you're reading the, the Viennese intellectuals, Toulmin's book on Wittgenstein's Vienna yes. or anything uh -huh. like that, you get this sense that all that was solid melts into air and there is a kind of uh, demented times, but that, that uh, you know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And so this tremendous burst of intellectual creativity that's going on in all these different fields happens to be going on at this time as yes. well. Um, uh, I'll just mention one more thing is that you, you mentioned Stefan Zweig's book, The, uh, the World of Yesterday, uh, which came out in 1942. He and his wife were um, Austrian Jews who went into exile and ended up in Brazil uh, where he was, he wrote or finished that manuscript, and it was published just before they committed suicide themselves. Right. Since we've been talking about that, yeah. uh, but but he he, he in, at, at one point, and I know since you've read the book, you might remember this. He presents this nostalgia that that that, that in spite of all of the conflicts, there was the sense in the Vienna society that that you came together and you shared and you conversed and you had a commonality in the coffee houses, and and there was a sense of of respect and tolerance in spite of all this. Uh, I, I think that in one sense that, that that's a nostalgia for something that wasn't true because, you know, you always understand things after the fact, yeah. not when you're living through it. And the fact that, that the Austro-Hungarian Empire could implode like this and the national, political and economic nationalism could rise so viciously to the society once the empire disintegrated, uh, the, 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 the national and ethnic and linguistic animosities that immediately took hold yeah, in almost all of the successor states shows that, in fact, it, was, it, it, it had always been a, a, a volcano that had sort of like a cork on top of it yeah. holding it. When the cork was removed, which was the, end, the death of Franz Josef in the midst of the war, it, yeah, it all exploded. Cool. Yeah, I, I was reminded of this only mm -hmm. because his description of the gymnasiums yes. and the way that the students and then also there's a uh, a book about uh, well Carl Polanyi has kind of had a a uh, resurrection in, uh -huh. in economic sociology mm -hmm. and and moral political economy circles mm -hmm. and his uh, brother Michael yeah. Uh, the one that we like better. Uh, uh, Michael, there's also a new book about him and his scientific community. And they also uh, go back to this gymnasium, the way you were describing yes. how these uh, these elite students, mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically were exposed to amazing things in terms of the ability to learn languages yes. and, and whatnot. Anyway, let's, uh, I want one other question just about this background, which is I was just wondering if you could take like just a few minutes to update, uh, you know, modern listeners about the contribution and the the uh, breadth of uh, respect throughout the world that Bambavrik held at the time that Mises was his student. Uh, well, yes. Now, uh, Eugen von Bambavrik uh, was born in 1851. He died in uh, 1914, uh, just shortly after the beginning of the First World War. He had a heart attack. Uh, 
he he and a fellow student, Friedrich von Wieser, uh, discovered Menger's principles shortly after it was published, although they did not have a chance to study with Menger at the University of Vienna. But what they did do is they, they went to the University of Heidelberg for their graduate studies, and they ended up inspired by his book to start taking themes that they would sort of elaborate and extend, and that's sort of how they became famous for the, those ideas. Uh, so Bumbavrik, on the one hand, established, really he and Wieser, but particularly him, established the international reputation of an Austrian school, right. far more than Menger. Because you see, while Menger's books were not, his principles were not published into English until 1950, uh, Bumbavrik and Wieser had their books published in English in the, uh, in, 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 in the 1890s. So the world became knowledgeable about the Austrian school through their works, not through Menger's. Uh, and and Bumbavrik was a great both polemicist and 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 a controversial debater. Um, first of all, he he had an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of economic thought, um, uh, and um, at the same time, anyone who would write anything critical of his essays or books, he viewed that as a challenge and would write responses and rebuttals. The most famous ones probably being the exchange between him and the famous American economist John Bates Clark, who's known for his distribution of wealth book as a developer of marginal productivity theory. Well, they went back and forth at least at least two, maybe three exchanges on these issues of interest and, and the nature of capital. Um, so so, so Bumbavrik had this international reputation um, as this voice for, quote, the Austrian perspective uh, that put it on the map, if you will. Then, you see, he actually lived two lives. Uh, he, had, he had gotten his teaching position at the University of Innsbruck, but not long after he published uh, his Capital Interest, which is his history of capital interest, and then his own version, The Positive Theory of right. Capital, he got called to public service, which is what he did for most of his professional life after that. He was called to Vienna to work in the, the Ministry of Finance, uh, in senior positions, both administrator and responsible for fiscal and tax matters. He three times served as the, the, the Minister of Finance of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the longest period being 1900 to 1904. And uh, uh, at this time, if you look at that period, the, the budget was balanced, taxes were cut, spending was cut, so there were surpluses for... Uh, the, 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 uh, so, so the part of the debt was being paid off, uh, and, 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 and there, there was no further, uh, there was minimal additional government regulation. Mm. He operated on, uh, operated in a cabinet by a prime minister who, uh, as one historian put it, was a proto-Keynesian. He wanted to, stim the prime minister wanted to sim stimulate the Austrian economy through public works projects, right? Demand, employment, and at it, and it, cabinet meetings where the, where the, where the, where the emperor was present, uh, Bumbavrik, as this historian calls him, was the stumbling block, mm -hmm. uh, arguing uh, against his own prime minister, as well as trying to tactfully explain to the emperor why his view, views and understandings of fiscal matters perhaps could need a little improvement. <laughs> uh, so actually, you know, mm. so, so Bumbavrik was a sort of the anti-Keynesian of a in a proto-Keynesian the, the government of a proto-Keynesian prime minister. Um, uh, and and then his, uh, he he left the ministry in in 1904 because 
he couldn't stand the corruption anymore um, that he saw in all the ministries, the slush funds, um, favoritism, contracts. Um, and so he resigned. And he then went back to his teaching position, but now at the University of Vienna, where he taught for the next 10 years in a favorite, a famous pro a seminar of his, where you had people like Ludwig von Mises and, and Joseph Schumpeter uh, 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 and, and many others. Yes. Um, um, oh, that's, I mean, yeah. that's, I, I, it's just, um, I think uh, <coughs> it's important for um, people to realize how um, international recognized Bambavrik was as an economist both yes. in the world of science and in the world of politics right, right. Um, okay so that's the background Mises is a student of Bambavrik yes he um, uh, Schumpeter as well as a student of Bambavrik yes. so you have two major figures that come out of this yes, who don't get along personally right and then you know but then Mises uh, goes off and starts his own career and he develops his own scientific Correct. reputation uh, maybe if you could just talk about uh, his development as an economist, um, theorist, and then his role at the chamber yes. uh, from uh, the like theory of, of uh, money and credit forward a little yes. bit. Just a few minutes, yeah. Yeah. Well, now, he, uh, his first book comes out in 1912. Well, it's not actually his first book. He did some monographs before that on economic, uh, economic history issues. But uh, his first major book comes out in 1912, which is a book on the theory of money and credit, in which he develops the theory of the demand for money, uh, sort of a micro foundations to the demand for money. Uh, he adopts uh, the, the, a certain str strand of 19th century economic thought uh, that, that runs especially through uh, the British economist John E. Cairns on emphasizing the non-neutrality of money, the micro rippling sequence of an injection of money enters and passes in sequence, a, a, a sequential time process affecting relative prices, relative wages, the structures of profitability, uh, and then c takes that uh, and blends it with two other traditions. Uh, Bombavik's theory of capital is a time structure of production. Mm -hmm. And then Vixell's, the Swedish economist, the, uh, the uh, Swedish economist Newt Vixell, who had published uh, Prices and Interest in 1898, uh, on the difference between a natural rate of interest, at which that, that's a rate of interest that assures an equilibrium between real savings and real investment, and a, a money rate of interest that can easily be distorted through monetary policy to push it below the natural rate and create an imbalance between savings and investment. The consequence of it is, is that he lays out this, this, this theory of money, uh, money's dynamic nature, uh, and, and the interactive uh, impact of misguided monetary policy that distorts interest rates from their equilibrium levels to bring about investment booms inconsistent with real savings that's going to set the stage for an economic downturn at some point. And that's his major contribution before the First World War, which, which gets recognition, but especially recognition after the First World War. But then he, he goes off and serves, as I said, uh, in, in the Austrian army uh, during the war. He comes back. Uh, to the Chamber of Commerce and other duties. But in the midst of this, uh, he is uh, also r writing essays, one of which becomes his famous essay, Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, which is printed obviously in German in 1920, in which he's challenging th this, new, th this new sense that socialism is the wave of the future. There's been the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, there has been an uprising of a short Soviet republic in Bavaria. 
uh, there has there has been in existence an attempted Marxist government uh, in um, in Hungary next door, uh, and the Social Democrats and the Communists in Austria are themselves all sort of panting with excitement to do this. So in the midst of this, he writes this famous article, in which he basically challenges the socialists on a mundane yet profoundly important question. Let us suppose you've nationalized the means of production and you've now established a system of central planning, which all of you, socialists and Marxists, say that you want. How now do you effectively plan an economy better than and more efficiently than a competitive market economy? Uh, in a nutshell, in a, in, a, in a market economy, there are market prices, reflecting the, the valuations and appraisements of both consumers and rivalrous producers for hiring the means of production. These prices provide the, the, the scalers by which you can compare the value of the outputs with the value of the inputs and the relative ex costs of different combinations of the inputs. So is this profitable or is this loss-making? And if there is one that's profitable, how can I combine the technological means of production in minimal value cost ways to maximize my potential profits if my entrepreneurial judgment is, turns out to be correct? Mm -hmm. And Mises says, well, after you've nationalized the means of production, there's nothing legally left to buy and sell. With nothing to buy and sell, there's no higgling in the marketplace. With no higgling in the marketplace, there's no agreed-upon terms of trade. If there's no agreed-upon terms of trade, then, th then, there's, then there's no prices. And if there's no prices, how do you rationally guide and direct the use of the resources to both get the most that you can in value terms out of what you have and, ha and they have been directed in ways that are satisfying the most urgently dire wants of the consumers themselves. You can't do it. Yeah. So as Mises used, uh, explained in the title of a little book of his many years later, you do not have a rational economy superior to any capitalist one. You have planned chaos. Right. Uh, now, of course, this causes a firestorm of controversy, but it doesn't change the fact that by the end of the day now, in the 1920s, the 1930s, into the 1940s, Mises basically has challenged all of them, where, in a sense, their, their fallback defense position is that of Oskar Lange uh, in the 1930s, the famous Polish economist, who says, well, yeah, Mises is right. We need prices. We can beat a statue of him in front of the planning department, uh, but we can play at prices. The central planning agency will set up sort of parameter prices. The, the, the state uh, factory managers will use those to decide how best to uh, utilize resources and what to produce. And if these prices do not represent uh, correct prices, well, the central planning agencies will adjust them to try to move the system in a, a more coordinated direction over time. The, the problem, Mises says, and I'm focusing on Mises, because Friedrich Hayek, his young colleague, obviously had his own very detailed rebuttals of this. But Mises' response is this. There are the there, there are either play prices or re real prices. And you don't know what things are worth in a changing and fluctuating world on a day-to-day -day basis unless they reflect, again, the values and appraisements of those who are actually demanding goods they're interested in paying for and those who are investing with their own capital and therefore they have an interest to be deciding what they think these resources are worth and the best way to apply them as opposed to some, so some abstract central planning committee, commission, committee in, in, in the capital of the, of the future socialist state, doing this in, 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 in some depersonalized and non-personalized right. way. Yeah, so I think that's a good setup because so we have Mises 
the major economic scientist who's contributed yes. to <coughs> monetary theory and is recognized throughout the continent as a major that. And then he is the, uh, the pe- person who puts forth the challenge to the socialist uh, comparative economic systems right. uh, using uh, standard price theory at that time was right. understood. This is what he's emphasizing. And he's also the leading liberal, one of the leading liberal thinkers throughout Europe. Yes, and in this thing, he takes that article of 1920, and uh, maybe a good number of the listeners may know this, he then expands it into a full-blown treatise, uh, which in English is just called Socialism and Economic and Sociological Analysis, which in its first German edition comes out in 1922. But this critique of socialism as an economic system is the core central chapters, but it's enveloped in a critique of socialism as a political uh, right. ideal, as a cultural possibility, uh, as 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 a as a as a uh, an international order, uh, its relationship to to secular beliefs and and religious faiths, yeah. uh, the place of women in in a socialist order compared to a liberal one. So so while the focus on socialism, if you read it carefully, he's always juxtaposing well in the liberal society, yeah. in the liberal system. So so he's always judging the socialists by by the benchmark both it's as what he views as right thinking on economics but from the the setting of of a political economic order of liberalism of of a classical type which then of course he then separates and uh, uh, expounds upon independently in a 1927 book on on liberalism Mm -hmm. uh, which is his restatement of the liberal ideal then followed two years later in 1929 by a collection of essays called Critique of Interventionism, in which he's saying it's not it's not as if you you know you reject socialism, uh, but you really don't want laissez-faire liberalism. What about the mixed economy, a, a third way? Mm-hmm. And his his system is that there is no possibility of a third way, that uh, intervention interventionism is not as radically disruptive as the abolition of markets and prices, but you're not allowing prices to work, and therefore it's like sand in the machine distorting the coordinating and informational role of the prices. And he talks about a division of knowledge in prices in these settings. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, by setting up production restrictions, you are preventing the entrepreneur from as effectively of his knowledge and own self-interest would suggest to be guiding production in, in ways most servicing the consumers. So at the end of the day, neither socialism nor interventionism are in the long run workable substitutes for a functioning and fairly free uh, uh, competitive uh, market economy. Yeah, and I, I think it's in, I mean, that's a great summary, and I think that the uh, what I wanted to sort of set you up to get to the lost papers now uh, was that uh, Mises' stature in the international community and in, in, in the German-speaking world in particular as a scientist and as a representative of, the, of liberalism um, and so now he, um, as you've discussed in several places, he moves to Geneva, but his papers and everything are still back in Vienna. And so tell the story then from there about how, okay. what happens to his library, to his papers, and, okay. and the subsequent history of that and your okay. own discovery of those. Okay, well, uh, Mises uh, had worked, as I said, from at the Vienna Chamber of Commerce from uh, 1909 to 1934, minus his war years uh, activities. And um, he had been a privat docent at the university, an unsalaried lecturer, a very popular teacher there. 
not just with, or, or in the nationality sense, Austrian students who were attending the university, but many foreign students came and studied for a semester with him. And his, and his registration cards, which are among his lost papers, shows many of them who you sort of vaguely know from earlier, you know, yeah. earlier periods of the 20th century. But uh, he gets this offer to have for a, a one-year position at the Graduate Institute of International Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and he takes a leave of absence from the Chamber of Commerce. Um, he, in retrospect, his contracts were renewed into until 1940 when he chose to resign to move to the United States. But as a consequence, he leaves most of his stuff in Vienna. I mean, you have to have his, obviously, if any, you know, a professor or writer, you need to have some books, some papers. So obviously he took some materials mm -hmm. with him to Geneva. But the bulk of his papers, his library, uh, his manuscripts, uh, correspondence, are all in his apartment. Now, <clears throat> Mises was a bachelor all this time. Um, so, you know, he kept everything in his mother's apartment. But his mother passed away in uh, late 1937. He returned the apartment uh, to the landlord, um, but he happened to know the couple who then re began renting the apartment that he had been living in. And in that context, he sublet what had been his room in the apartment from them. So he didn't have to do something with all right. of his stuff. Right, right. And the family stuff that he had moved into that room with his mother's passing. Uh, now, a few months later, it's, it's March of 1938, uh, the Anschluss occurs, uh, that is the German invasion and shortly after that formal annexation of Austria into the, uh, the Third Reich, Nazi Germany. Uh, but within the first couple of weeks after uh, the, the Nazi occupation of Austria, um, the Gestapo came to his apartment looking for him. Well, he's safe in Geneva, Switzerland. But they break into the room that he had been continuing to sublet in what had been his mother's apartment, um, and they just box up everything, his papers, his library, his correspondence, his personal effects, uh, and they're gone. Now, about a year later, in March of 1939, he sent a letter of information to all of his friends throughout Europe. Uh, I only found out about this letter to begin with because I found them among Hayek's papers at the Hoover Institution. Uh, but uh, he be, it's like a two- or three-page letter, and he explains what had happened. And he actually enumerates some of the collections of books that they had taken away mm -hmm. and the type of papers and correspondence and other things. And he says that, that he had had a lawyer intercede on his behalf with the German authorities, basically the Gestapo, and s trying to get at least some of his belongings back. And according, according to the lawyer... Uh, the, not, the, the Gestapo said, we don't know where they are. Now, I knew his widow, Margaret von Mises, fairly well in New York in the uh, 1970s. Uh, and uh, I asked her, you know, what did Mises think about all this? And she said that he believed to the day he died that either the Nazis had destroyed everything, which would not have been unusual, you know, that imagery of the Germans burning books and stuff, or perhaps it had been in a warehouse, you know, allied bombing and, you know, right. the, the fate of war. Who knows? But as I like to say, uh, remembering a song from the Gershwin, Porgy, and Bess uh, <laughs> opera, it ain't necessarily so. Yeah. And as a consequence, it turns out uh, that Mises' papers ended up being uh, put in a repository 
in a small town in what in Bohemia, what is now the Czech Republic, along with all of these other collections that the Nazis plundered as they overran good parts of Europe. Um, as I had been mentioning to you earlier, uh, handwritten Mozart, Mozart scores, um, manuscripts by uh, Einstein in hand, uh, things such as the, um, the entire secret police archive uh, of the French police um, that the Nazis had looted when they occupied Paris in 1940. Uh, so it goes on and on and on, and they're all housed in this small place in Bohemia. Now, fast forward to May of 1945, and uh, it's now the end of the Second World War, and this is a part of Czechoslovakia that the Soviet army liberates. And the uh, Soviet army, I found out, fanned into the town, uh, reached the railway station, and there were 24 railway boxcars. And they broke into them, and all they find is paper. It's these millions of pages of documents of, of collections and whatever that they that the Nazis have been storing there and which the trains could not move west into remaining unoccupied, uh, that, that is still Nazi-controlled territory before the war ended. Well, they, they, they called in the NKVD, the old name for the KGB. Uh, a couple of their senior agents just like perused a fraction of these millions of pages of boxcar full of paper uh, and informed Stalin. And uh, Comrade Stalin orders that the 24 railway boxcars, uh, railway boxcars, be transported to Moscow, and that a secret archive will be built to house all this. Mm -hmm. And it was, and uh, the building was completed in uh, in the immediate uh, uh, post-war years. Uh, one of those old-fashioned large stone block buildings mm -hmm. uh, with bars on the window. Now, when it was built, um, it was sort of towards the outcurt outskirts of the center of the city. But, of course, with the growth of Moscow over the decades in the post-war period, it's practically like in the center of the city. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife, uh, who's Russian, I met her in my travels in the Soviet Union, uh, after we realized, and I'll explain that, where this building was, and we actually went to it, she says, you know, I've even passed this building. You know, it was so nondescript with this little, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, uninformative plaque on, on, the, on the front door. But anyway, so um, it was built. It was assigned to be an archive managed by the uh, KGB itself, and that the only people having access to anything there was the KGB and uh, representatives of the Ministry of Soviet Affairs. Uh, they arranged Mises's papers, uh, their archivists, into uh, 196 separate files, uh, arranged in the fashion that they thought seemed logical to them. Uh, and there it sat um, throughout the post-war period. Now, uh, did it just collect dust? Well, you know, th there was an index that the Soviets had put together. And, you know, like a library book or something, there's like a little thing here where people, you know, sign in or sign out when they've used something. And periodically, the K somebody in the KGB staff would go through it and obviously peruse it for something, and then you know, and then sign it back in, you know, to be filed away again. So it was referred to, uh, not frequently but irregularly, uh, on several occasions in that post-war period. Though of course, just you know, the sign-in and sign-out dates tell you nothing about why, in a particular instance, yeah, yeah. it was done. But anyway, um, 
again, I'm talking too much, and I apologize. No, 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 no. Um, this is fascinating. I was in Vienna in um, 1993, my wife and I, and I was doing research on Mises and Hayek and other Austrians in the uh, in the official Austrian uh, and Vienna archives. I, I got a copy of Mises's military uh, jacket, you know, the the file. Yeah. Uh, I, I I got an immense amount of papers and paraphernalia from uh, uh, the archives of the Austrian Institute for Business Cycle Research, which is now called the Austrian Institute for Economic Research, um, and uh, uh, things about the ennoblement of his great-great-grandfather. I have a copy of the, the, the autobiography that his great-great-grandfather had to write as part mm -hmm. of you know applying for this. Uh, anyway, so I had a, I, there was someone who I had known previously named Gunther Kalupik, who was at that time with the Austrian um, uh, Ministry of Labor or something like that. He wrote a really good paper many years ago on the calculation debate. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's in yes. Hope. Yeah, and so uh, uh, Gunther Kalupik told me that, you know, not too long ago I, I ran into a couple of uh, uh, German uh, researchers, and they had been in Moscow looking for information about pre-war anti-fascist Germans. Uh and in one of the indexes, they saw a reference to Mises, but since he was Austrian and not German, they neither had the particular focused interest nor the time to pursue it. And he said, that's all I know. Well, my wife coming from Moscow, and it was during the Yeltsin years, so some of her friends were actually connected with Yeltsin's government. They all tried to you know, look and find out, couldn't find out anything. Fast forward to 1996. My wife and I are in Washington, D.C. I was giving some lectures uh, for Young America's Foundation. And uh, for some, a variety of reasons, we decided to go to the Holocaust Museum. And uh, we're talking to one of the researchers. And I said to him, I said, you know something? There was this Austrian Jew named Ludwig von Mises. And you know his paper, papers had been you know, seized by the Nazis. Uh, is there any chance that... Since they have like this catalog, computerized thing about everyone who is a victim, of uh, every European Jew who is a victim of the Nazis, is it possible that you know you would know if a Gestapo file on Mises had survived the war? I mean, just as an historical curiosity, right? A Gestapo file on Mises. Well, he looked through. If it survived the war, nobody knows that it exists. I said, well, you know, I've heard something that something about Mises might be in Moscow. And he says, well, we have a researcher here who focuses on Holocaust uh, uh, studies in the former Soviet Union, since the, the Nazis killed you know, so many Jews in, in, this, in, the, in the Soviet territories. Mm -hmm. um, my wife and I were introduced to him, and he said, you know something? I just received the index to a collection in a formerly secret archive. And it was in a black spiral binder. On the on the front on the title page is the name of the archive uh, the name of the archive, its address, its telephone number, its fax number, uh, the names of the uh, of the director and vice director and so on. I start flipping you know, page after page after page, then and it's all numbered. So number six twenty three dash Ludwig Mises. My wife notices something. Now my wife has her PhD in history and political science from Moscow State University. And for many years, she worked in the Soviet Academy of Sciences as a senior researcher. Uh, so she knows how the Soviet archival systems work. If something is called a file, it's 5,000 pages or less. 
if it's above 5,000 pages, is called a fund. His is called Fund 623. So it's 5,000 pages and more. Yeah. So I get back to Hillsdale College, whereas I was the uh, Ludwig von Mises professor for many years, including those years. And I informed the then president of Hillsdale College, George Roach. Uh, George Roach, before he became president of Hillsdale, had been the program director at the Foundation for Economic mm -hmm. Education. Uh, he had met the very elderly Mises and greatly admired him. Uh, he had arranged to purchase Mises's library after his passing. Uh, he had gotten endowed a Mises chair. He had a Mises lecture series every year. And so I told George Roach, I said, George, you know, this is what my wife tells me about what's the amount there, but the, you know, I have no idea, but this would be a find. He immediately got in touch with a couple who were good friends of Hillsdale College. They wrote a very large check, like instantly, to fund a trip for my wife and I to go there. Well, she contacted her friends in Moscow. I could not have done this without my wife, Anna. Mm -hmm. I have to underline that. If, 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 if this was successfully pursued, it was due to her good works because it would have been impossible for me. Uh, she contacts her friends in Moscow, and uh, they now I have the information where it is. They contact the director. They arrange the visas, uh, the, the entree into it. And so in October of 1996, we go to Moscow, and uh, we get there, and we spent almost two weeks there uh, going through all 196 files and basically arranging for the photocopying of about 10,000 pages of material. Wow. And it wasn't cheap because uh, it's a long, uh, the statute of limitations has now passed, and uh, uh, we basically had to bribe them with about $20,000 of cash mm -hmm. and uh, an immense amount of liquid assets, basically going to uh, liquor stores that had Western <laughs> uh, alcoholic beverages and, and purchasing a huge quantity of French cognac and other things. So, you know, here I am. I'm holding Mises' papers, many of them handwritten. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like from 1921, uh, 18, uh, 1913. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Th this is like history if you're interested in the Austrian school. Right. Um, so we, we brought it back to the United States. Uh, and uh, shortly after that, Liberty Fund of Indianapolis found out about it uh, and approached Hillsdale College and me uh, uh, with the offer of funding the translation of a large uh, selection of this uh, and asking if I would be serve as the editor of the series, overseeing the translations and preparing the volumes. Right. Uh, I can read German. Uh, I can even translate German. Uh, it's not my, f my first language. And it's a tiring and tedious work, um, though I have translated some things into German, as you know, yeah, yeah. from German. Uh, but uh, the fact is, I mean, we're talking about an immense amount of material. Yeah. So um, uh, I was able to arrange uh, for some people to be the professional translators, including one woman uh, who had known Mises before the war. Her parents were friends of his, who translated a good part of the stuff for Hayek's collected works. Oh, wow. And uh, she was delightful to work. She's a fascinating, I, I, I don't even know if she's still with us, but she was deaf and dumb. She could not speak or hear, but she did this work. But anyway, uh, and then I arranged for some uh, German, native-born Germans who I knew who were 
economists or had had experience with business and economics to translate them. And then my task was to go through the translation, since I, I can read German, and to make sure that it was exact, right? No translation is literal. You can't do that. But that it's correct. Yeah, yeah. And because it's several different translators, to sort of edit it mildly, mm -hmm. not content, but that it has a continuity of style that is consistent with, from uh, since I've read everything by Mises, it's, it, the style is consistent with what you would expect from yeah. Ludwig von Mises. Uh, now, uh, so let me just, so this ends up by being your three volumes that correct, you do with which Liberty Fund publishes as the selected writings of Ludwig von right. Mises. Now, uh, what I pre did is I prepared for each of them lengthy introductions in which I explained uh, the historical context, uh, what Mises was doing, and what these articles were about, yeah. and and relevant people, and then through each of the essays, the translated essays or articles, uh, I prepared detailed annotated footnotes right. specifying the event, the person, the place, or the context as the person is reading yeah, that, that would enable them to understand better what he's referring to. Yeah, these volumes are, are amazing and, and uh, uh, I guess one of the things I wanted to, so Mises wrote a lot in his life ah. um, but this, uh, these uh, particular volumes that you have um, uh, they give a uh, 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 different looks at Mises. Yes, Maybe you do. could just comment very briefly on that. Yes. Now, uh, we, if, if you're familiar with the Austrian school and uh, some of Mises' works in particular, uh, what, 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 you, what, what you have a view of Mises as, as the grand theorist, uh, the, the armchair theorist who, who, who talks about the institutional alternatives of capitalism and socialism, uh, the, the, the developer of of a, of, a, of a theory of money in the business cycle and so on and so on. The, the, the person who writes on the wider issues of methodology of the social sciences. For, there are some pieces in these, in these volumes that are like that. But the vast of mar of majority of them are a different Mises that most of us had not been familiar with. This is Mises as the detailed, everyday policy analyst. It's... It, 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 it's... it's uh, before the First World War, why hasn't Austria formally gone on the gold standard as opposed to being on a de facto gold standard? Yeah. And what would be the pros and the cons? During the war, the issues of uh, 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 fiscal policy, uh, ethnic differences, inflation. But then after the war, through the 20s and the 30s, what do you do as, a, as, a, as an empire is disintegrating into separate na nation states, and you have to turn one empire currency into different national currencies. Right. What do you do that as a hyperinflation is facing the country, and your, the national currency is going to become worthless? How do you substitute private alternatives to the now worthless state money if it reaches that point? Right. Let's prepare. Yeah. Uh, there, there were people in the immediate post World War One period who thought that Austria could not be viable as a separate country and should be integrated into the post-war uh, post Republic of Germany. Well, how do you combine two separate national currencies? Uh, the same way that right, it, the EU, how did you take the national currencies and make it the euro? He has to write about that. Then he's dealing with foreign exchange controls. He's dealing with with, with, with a hyperinflation that is getting worse and analyzing why and how 
and, 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 and what is to be done about this. The discussions of the end of money in Russia. Um, uh, then it becomes the period after the, infla the, high, the, the, the Austrian Great Inflation. But now he's dealing with the fiscal matters. For example, okay, we have this bloated bureaucracy at multi-levels of the national Austrian government and then the different state governments of the, of the provinces within Austria. How do you streamline the bureaucracy? And in a public choice way, how do you prevent the resistance of all the public servants? Mm -hmm. So to create enough of a carrot incentive for the older servants to support it and the younger ones who are going to be let go first will be let go, but you'll have enough of the older civil servants that they'll go along with the, yeah. with, with the, with the, uh, the reforms that are going to reduce the number of bureaucrats in the society. So he deals with all of these matters. Yeah. But then the Great Depression comes. Okay. What happens when, 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 the, when the financial crisis occurs and, and, and Austria can't pay its debts? And how do you handle cutting finances? And now a deflation is occurring. And how must you respond to that to minimize the damage of the deflation? Mm -hmm. These are all the type of specific policy issues. And it's not only published articles, but included in these volumes are obviously previously unpublished, his internal policy memoranda for the Vienna Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. So, so this is like the inside stuff that he's telling the people that he's representing and, 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 and those to whom he's responsible. This is what we should be advocating because these are the things that need to be done to save Austria in these different crisis times. Mm -hmm. So, so a, a way of thinking about this is this: if, if if you've read about a little bit about Austrian economics in this broader sense, you've either thought, or maybe someone has said to you, "Yeah, all this Austrian economics, yeah, that's fine," but how do you apply this stuff to the real world? Right. Well, here is one of the most prominent Austrian economists of the 20th century applying his Austrian economics to these myriad of policy issues of everyday decision-making yeah. in his time. So in a sense, that, that gives an entire, you know, Mises as the applied economist of his grand ideas. Yeah. And uh, it enriches both not only an understanding of him, but an appreciation of, of the meaning and application of, of, of the theory. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great. There was a dissertation published when I was a graduate student about Mises called The Economist of the Country. Yes. And uh, we used to kid around when we were in graduate school, you know, about about that. But in reading those volumes, it becomes clear that actually that is a very apt description of what Mises was up to at the time. I should say this, is that um, apropos to this, you know, what is Mises' place? You know, you're asking Bombavert's prominence yeah. in, in, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and in, in the international circles before the First World War. Because of his theoretical books and his significance as a policy analyst uh, in Vienna, his reputation in the period between the wars, if I can make that analogy, if anyone interested in public policy issues over a good part of the post-World War II period in the United States would have heard of Milton Friedman, the most, one of the most prominent and articulate advocates of free market policy matters in the United States and a contributor to economic theory within his own profession, right? right? That was literally the brand name re recognition, the name recognition and the significance of Ludwig von Mises in the, in the Europe of the 1920s and 30s, far beyond his own little German-speaking world. Right. Uh, he, he, he participated. You, you read things by other liberals and non-liberals during that period, and whether they're agreeing with him, totally or partially, 
or whether severely criticizing him. He's always the foil. He's sort of a benchmark on all these things. So he, he, to use that sort of imagery, he was the Milton Friedman of interwar Europe. Yeah, no, that's a great, uh, that's a great summary. Uh, these volumes that you did are just tremendous work, uh, Richard. And you should, you both, you and Anna, should be very much, uh, you know, celebrated for discovering yeah. those archives and bringing them out. Uh, just to end with a note of levity about this. I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about the Batman comic ah. <laughs> that's associated with this, and then we'll wrap this up. Okay, there is a, uh, there have been the things called the Batman comic book. And as I, I've never met the fellow, but what I was told, one of their, their, their artists, you know, who doodled the, 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 the cartoons, uh, was or is a libertarian. And he found out about this, and he asked the editors, could he do an issue on it? And so th this is, it's, it's, it's Batman saving M Mises' lost papers yeah. from the evil Gestapo. And it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that somewhere, you know, on, on the internet, you can sort of download, you know, a PDF of this. But it's, it's absolutely hilarious. It's really very well done. So one last question then. Do you and Anna hand out candy on Halloween dressed as Batman and Batgirl? <laughs> you know, I'm going to mention that to her. <laughs> Meant to her about that. Oh, and I'll just tell one other little story that that about Mises in the old days. Uh, you know, he he graduated from the university, but before uh, he began working at the Chamber of Commerce, he was working as a law clerk in a law office in Vienna. And so, uh, according to the story, he was told to r report and give testimony at a case in a Vienna court, and he showed up late. And when the he took the stand, the judge says, uh, "Dr. Mises." You were late for court today. Why? And he said, well, Your Honor, I'm sorry, but I had gotten uh, a taxi and we got caught in traffic, meaning the, the, the new motorized taxis. The judge looked at him and said, Dr. Mises, there's a lesson in this. Next time, ride a, ride a horse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.